Hello all, and a very warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier one-person-and-his-cat true crime podcast that seeks to mostly bring you those tales of true crime that I've sourced from the darkest recesses of the UK. The ones that aren't too much in the public conscious, that are sometimes horrific, mind-bending, often long forgotten, but no less true, and no less important whatsoever. Doing so as ever is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the most popular member of the show, my beloved hairy football, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here as always, he's never far from me, and most importantly, completing us are yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show so worthwhile. It is as fabulous as it always is having you joining me in the mog that sleeps like a log today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, back on the regular show after the monthly Patreon break now, and with it come massive thanks to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs here for new friends Ain Sweeney, Kirsty Derrick, Amanda L. SMISM, I'm not sure if that's about mismism or not, but... Hi Amanda anyway, Michael Beckhurst, Jack Burrows, Paula Brabs, Gina Phillip, Teresa Gort and Sandra Hare and Emily Grant who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so kindly all, your support means the absolute world and I'm very very grateful for it. I have got a load of stuff going out this week also for some as the posties finally seem to have gotten a grip on the ban through sending stuff out internationally bloody cyber attacks eh? so there are things on their way for those who have been waiting patiently i'm unsure how long it may take to get to some but it is winging its way to you you know who you are now like this very kind bunch you yourselves may wish to support the show perhaps you even fancy a package from me yourselves or you may be just content enough to hear the tales behind bonus episode titles such as the samaritan and the salvationist the Lost Girls of Liverpool, an offering to the Angels, or the latest tale that dropped just a few days ago, snippets of the strange and stupid, to name just a selection of the full series plus amount of bonus tales that being a supporter gets you. Whatever you'd fancy, it's an absolute breeze to do. Simply head over to the Patreon site and seek out the show there. It's got the same logo and everything, so you can't miss it. But do remember that podcast suffix if you're seeking it out. Or, you don't even need to do that really, because I always leave a clickable link right to it with the show's contact details in every episode show notes. And you can be listening to these and more... And I am proud to say I've managed to curate some right bonus tales in the back catalogue. There's a proper mixed bag. There's some great stuff in there. You can be on them quicker than Philip Schofield buying a smaller turkey for this Christmas. And of course, not queuing up for it either. So, not too much preamble there this time around. For the case I've selected for this time, and next as it's worked out, is quite one to tell because there is a fair bit to it, and so I've decided to break it down into two parts. It's so much more workable, it makes for a more detailed story, and it doesn't end up longer than the list of reasons Sam Smith has become my new favourite chod. What a dullard that is indeed, the attention-seeking bellend. 
The tale I've researched and written is also a hometown tale for me. It takes place almost entirely in my home city of Wrexham, where I'm from and where I still live today. I have brought a tale from here before on the show. Those with good memories may remember way back when to open series four of the show with Tatty's story. But if you've not heard that episode, as a slight introduction to Wrexham, or Spice World as some reports shown on BBC News have in the past led it to be called in some circles, Wrexham is the largest urban area in North Wales and has recently become Wales' seventh city. We have arguably the most talked about football club in the country, in part because of its Hollywood owners, in part because of Super Paul Mullin, gotta get that in, and notable people to hail from there include the person who Yale University is named after, Elu Yale, who's buried in the city, former Miss Wales and later Miss UK, Amy Guy, footballers Robbie Savage and Nico Williams, Olympic medal-winning rowers Tom James and Chris Bartley, and of course, me. Now the individual we'll meet this time around, and next, is another son of the town. It will always be a town to some of us. But this one is a son that is seen in a less than favourable light though, thanks to his actions that caused misery and loss for many, lasting reminders for several, and for one family in particular, loss, heartache, and pure horror. Had he not been stopped when he was, undoubtedly, then with the path he was on, other families would have experienced the same. We may time jump slightly out of chronology with the account, but I hope that the reason for it will become apparent as the tale progresses. I found it's flowed so much better writing it like that. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, we're off back a few years pre-pandemic now, firstly to 2017, so please join the true crime enthusiasts for the first part of a tale recounting the exploits of an individual in a two-part episode I've entitled Crime Wave. We begin the tale with a routine call to police patrols operating around the North Wales area, specifically the town of Flint, and in the very early hours of the 29th of March 2017, with officers advised to be on the lookout for a BMW estate car that had just been circulated as wanted and was reported had been spotted heading that way, suspected of being used in a violent robbery in the nearby city of Chester just a couple of hours before. It was only minutes after midnight seen travelling through, through the nearby village of Suckton, and at 12.18am it was located at the Gulf Service Station on the A5119 North Up Road heading into Flint by Police Constables Reese Rushby and David Hall, who intercepted. The two officers recalled later, with PC Rushby describing, We headed for the petrol station and saw the car so we stopped directly in front of it and called for backup. One man got out of the driver's side, and there was a woman in the passenger seat. While I was taking details of the man, PC Hall started speaking to someone in the rear of the vehicle. I hadn't seen anyone in the back, so I was quite surprised. PC Hall continued. There were lots of items in the back seat of the car, including a wheelchair, blankets, and a bit of a tent or something. It was full of all kinds of stuff. 
Then I saw a set of eyes and a hand moving in the back, so I spoke to the lad. I couldn't see his face at that point, and I remember banging on the window, and that's when I saw him winding the window down because it was an old car. I've asked him what his name is, and he's given me his name. He's given me his date of birth. I remember writing it on my hand. But when I took his hood down, I recognised who it was. I remember unzipping him, pulling his hood off, and he turned his head away. Soon as I saw him do that, I thought, I know who you are, and you're Jordan Davidson. At that moment, I literally couldn't speak. I just couldn't get my words out. And he realised that I'd recognised him. Suddenly, he reached back into the car and produced a claw hammer and lifted it above his head. I remember turning away and he just hit me on the shoulder and that's when it all turned a bit chaotic. Seeing what was happening, PC Rushby immediately ran to help his colleague. He continued. I could see that PC Hall was struggling by the back door and as I ran around, I saw him being hit repeatedly with a claw hammer. I sprayed the suspect a couple of times but it had no effect, so I ran around to the other side of the car and opened the door, and at that, all sorts of gas canisters and other items came toppling out onto the petrol station forecourt. As that happened, he slid back into the car towards me, so his head was inches from mine. He was hitting and scratching me, trying to bite me, and at one point, I tried to wrap a sleeping bag around his head to try and stop him. He kept on going, and then started screaming that he's got a gun and he's going to kill us, he's going to shoot us. He reached down for something under the seat beneath the sleeping bag, so I grabbed his hand. I could feel he had something in his hand. It was inches away from my head, but I didn't know what it was, and I could feel him trying to turn it towards me. I could just feel that he had his fist clenched and was turning whatever it was towards me, saying, I've got a gun, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to kill you. On sheer instinct, PC Hall fired his taser into the back of the car while PC Rushby dragged the man, Jordan Davidson, though the taser didn't connect with him. By this time, other officers had arrived and due to all the items covering him in the back seat of the car, plus the struggle he put up, in which he'd even managed to remove PC Hall's belt containing his taser and his casco baton, it took the two blasts of CS spray and four attempts to taser Davidson before it was finally effective. He was subdued, and he was dragged out of the car, handcuffed, and arrested. The weapon he'd had in his hand turned out to be a large kitchen knife. PC Rushby said later, It was really scary, probably up there with one of the scariest moments I've had during my time in the force. I had an idea it might have been Davidson in the car after hearing how violent the robbery was, so I panicked a little bit when we ended up fighting with him. It was all a bit of a blur, really. We were having to literally fight for our own lives. PC Hall, who escaped with cuts and bruises after Davidson attacked him with a claw hammer, added, We were really lucky. I'll be honest, when I knew it was, I knew we'd be in trouble. But you just do your job, don't you? It's what we're here to do. This one particularly stands out because of who it was. There was no way we could let him get away. The other occupants of the vehicle, a 19-year-old woman and a 51-year-old male, were also arrested, though were later released without charge. 
Now, the circumstances you've just heard described were the culmination of a weeks-long crime wave by the individual described, then 25-year-old Jordan James Lee Davidson, that had resulted in him becoming, if not one of the most wanted men in the country, then certainly by that time the most wanted man in North Wales. His actions over the previous few weeks had led to a senior officer from North Wales Police, Detective Superintendent Yestin Davis, issuing the following briefing just the previous day, the second concerning Davidson that week. I am appealing for anyone who may have information which could assist our investigation to come forward. I am particularly keen to hear from anyone who heard or witnessed a disturbance in Crescent Close or who may have seen Mr Davidson between 2.30pm on Thursday March 23rd and yesterday morning March 27th. I believe Jordan Davidson is somewhere in the Wrexham area and the key to locating him is information from the public. If anyone sees Mr Davidson or knows of his whereabouts, I'd ask that they contact police immediately, but under no circumstances should anyone approach him, as he may be in possession of weapons. I also want to reassure the public that every effort is being made to locate the suspect. There are increased reassurance patrols in and around the town, and people will notice an active police presence as we carry out inquiries. Those weapons Davidson was possibly in possession of had been detailed in a parade briefing to officers, which stated, Davidson is possibly in possession of both a machete and an axe. Jordan Davidson is carrying these on his person, possibly down the side of his trousers or the back of his trousers. The axe is silver in colour with a black handle, and the machete is carried in a brown machete pouch. Now, this sounds serious enough already for this to be someone that seriously needs taking off the streets, doesn't it? There's little available to research concerning Davidson's early life, though reports, and people I've spoken to, do describe him as having a troubled upbringing in the Kaya Park area of Wrexham, with social services involved with Davidson from a young age, which also led to repeated contact with child and adolescent mental health services. He'd already drifted into drug use and petty crime by the mid-2000s, spending several periods of this homeless, for there are no reports of him having any contact with any family, so to speak. And by 2015, aged just 23, he'd accumulated multiple convictions for some 38 previous offences, being in and out of prison for various sentences for these. To explain why by 2017 he was so wanted, and the very real urgency to catch him there was then, I shall recap as follows. But we shall have to jump back somewhat, firstly to April 2015, where Jordan Davidson, then aged 23, was appearing at Mould Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Nicholas Parry, facing yet more multiple charges of burglary and theft in the Wrexham area. The court heard that Davidson, who was at the time living in Gerald Street in Wrexham, had admitted attempted burglary with intent to steal at a house in Wrexham's Dale Street on October the 10th of the previous year, where he and another man were seen knocking on the door and then disappearing down the side of the property. Smashing glass was heard, and they then re-emerged, only to be challenged by a passerby. The owner later returned to the house to find a rear window broken 
a breeze block inside her living room and the window boarded up with a note from the police. Davidson had also admitted burglary at a house in Bryn Road in Wrexham on November the 9th, where the occupant found the iPhones, laptops and other items, including a glove, all of which were later found in Davidson's possession, had been stolen. He'd also admitted handling property stolen during the burglary of a couple's home in Forest Road on the same day, including stolen watches, three bracelets and a camera, and a further attempted burglary in Derby Road, when he and another man knocked on a multiple occupancy house and then smashed a window there. However, a member of the public challenged them and called the police, and Davidson was arrested after trying to escape through nearby gardens. He was aggressive with arresting officers and subsequently was not interviewed because of his uncooperative nature. Prosecuting barrister Matthew Curtis Casey told how Davidson had been released from prison for similar offences on September the 16th of the previous year and had started offending once again on October the 10th. Noting that the offences had all happened within a 20-day period when he was on early release licence, Henry Hills Casey, defending, said that Davidson had been in a particularly dark place at the time of the offences and he had mental health problems due to his drug use, explaining that whilst this was no excuse, it was the reality of his situation. Judge Parry remarked that Davidson's appearance in the court meant that it was the 7th, 8th and ninth times he'd been involved in burglary at people's homes, telling him. You were involved in a mini crime wave in October and November of last year. You were still only 23 but you've accumulated 38 previous offences for mainly serious dishonesty. You simply have no regard for the feelings of, or the consequences for, those who have suffered at your hands. Telling Davidson that it was time the public were given as long a rest as possible from him, he then sentenced him to three years imprisonment, which Davidson was to serve at Her Majesty's Prison Park in Bridge End in South Wales. While there, Davidson, who was said to be fond of knives, was charged with unlawful possession of a knife that was found in his prison cell, to which he pleaded guilty to at Cardiff Crown Court in January 2016, and which he received a consecutive sentence of 12 months imprisonment for. However, he was released early on licence from this sentence on December the 9th, 2016, after which, he returned to his home area of Wrexham and was placed in refuge shelter accommodation in the city's Crescent Road, very near to the Tesco Superstore and the Mecca Bingo on the outskirts of the city's Kaya Park. Now, if you're from the Wrexham area, the large suburb of Kaya Park, or the park as it's commonly known, will be well known to you. It does carry with it a reputation of being a deprived area it has to be said that it's seen its share of murders over the years, you never know, some of which may feature on the Enthusiast at a later date. The Red Dragon pub that used to be the centre of it, think shameless, and there was a very serious riot down there 20 years ago, but I feel it unfair to write it off and make it just all about that, because everywhere has pockets of criminality, doesn't it? No matter how leafy or how bloody range-rovered it may be. The park's somewhere I've always felt alright in, and indeed, 
I have family members and several friends who've called the park their home for many years. If you head over to the episode thread in the show's Facebook discussion group following the episode, I've been and visited several of the scenes mentioned, and a lot of them are in Kaya Park, that will help contextualise where I'm on about. Particularly Crescent Road, which leads onto Crescent Close, the importance of which will become apparent as the tale progresses. Davidson had been out on licence from prison just five days when he was arrested by police at 10.10am on the morning of the 14th of December 2016 on suspicion of the theft of a coat from the Wrexham branch of Pound Stretcher on the Border Retail Park and was taken to the Wrexham Divisional Custody Suite which was at the time pretty much just across the road from there. The police have a nice new custody suite building now a couple of miles out of town in Clyde as the original custody suite was demolished in 2020 and what an ugly looking building it was too, it has to be said. If you head over to YouTube, there's footage of it being demolished on there and you'll see exactly what I mean. Officers completed a PNC check on Davidson and noted the warning markers on his custody record including the marker released, supervised, and although the custody sergeant authorised Davidson's detention, by 12.37pm he had been charged with the offence of theft and given conditional bail to appear in court at a later date. After a few weeks, Davidson was evicted from the hostel on Crescent Road, leaving him homeless, and he appears going forth to a stayed with various friends and acquaintances of his in the area including a speller and address in Vernon Street, sofa surfing. During this time, he became involved with an unnamed then 15-year-old schoolgirl, a vulnerable young girl with support workers whom Davidson is said to have become obsessed with. A court heard the following year. One of the triggers for the defendant's behaviour appears to have been a complaint made to North Wales Police that the defendant had sexually assaulted her. Indeed, on the 14th of February, a member of the public reported to North Wales Police that they'd been the victim of a sexual offence four days previously, but did not initially name Davidson as the alleged offender. A third party stated to police that they believed Davidson may have committed this offence, but the alleged victim initially indicated that they didn't wish to make a formal complaint regarding this matter at the time. Skip forward to more than a month later now, to the 22nd of March, and the alleged victim had, by this time, identified Davidson as the alleged offender and indicated that she now wished to make a formal complaint, being interviewed as a witness regarding this matter on the afternoon of the 24th of March, by which time, an appeal for information concerning Jordan Davidson's whereabouts had already been put out by North Wales Police. However, the Crown Prosecution Service later decided that there was insufficient evidence to charge Davidson with any offence regarding this matter. Before then, meanwhile, Davidson had been arrested yet again on the 1st of March, this time for theft of items to the value of £3.78 from the little supermarket on the A525, which is coincidentally my local store and at 6pm was taken to the Wrexham custody suite, again charged with theft to appear at court at a later date, and was again bailed. 
Just over a week later, at 8.20pm on the 8th of March, a member of the public reported to North Wales Police that they'd seen an unknown male inside their vehicle, which had been parked unattended and left unlocked, and that, upon seeing them, the unknown male had got out of their vehicle and made off, dropping a carrier bag full of items which he'd taken from the vehicle. Skip forward to the 30th of March, at which point Davidson had been arrested in Flint, as I described at the onset of the episode, and a PCSO in Wrexham recorded that the reporting person from the 8th of March had spoken to them in the street that day, and had told them that they'd seen a photograph of Davidson on the news, and were certain that he was the male who'd been inside their vehicle and attempted to take items from it. Though Davidson was identified as a suspect, he was not later charged with this offence. On the 12th of March, Davidson's landlord of where he was then staying, a house in Wrexham's Vernon Street, reported to police that Davidson was bringing stolen property back to the address, including a set of ski boots, and that, frightened of him, he wished him to leave. This incident was later closed by police as the owner of the property in question stated when spoken to that it had been returned to him and he didn't wish to go forward with a complaint, preferring to let the matter lie. In the early hours of the following morning, at 4.13am, CCTV operators had witnessed Davidson fighting with another man on Hope Street in Wrexham and officers were dispatched to attend. However, the other man who was involved in the fight did not wish to pursue any formal complaint, and so Davidson was arrested not on suspicion of assault, but merely to prevent a further breach of the peace. He was taken to Wrexham custody suite, but was not charged with any offence, and was released from custody later that morning. Now, this catalogue of crime and arrests, though extensive, may seem trivial and petty, and it certainly doesn't make you one of the country's most wanted, does it? He seems more of a nuisance and a pain in the arse, really. But, I'm building up to that. The most serious events attributed to Jordan Davidson that month were certainly set in motion by the following day, the 14th of March, although really, they had been even earlier than that, and it's with them that he made the jump from a mere vile-sounding scumbag to a dangerous killer that needed to be stopped. 67-year-old Nicholas Churton had had, what is fair to say, a bit of mixed fortunes throughout his life. Born and raised in Liverpool, the son of a family of wine importers, Nick had attended public school in Bedford, later training and qualifying as an accountant in Cheshire, before moving to work in Cape Town in South Africa for a number of years. In the 1980s, deciding upon a change of career, he'd returned to the UK to set up a business on his own, Churton's Restaurant, which is today known as The Hideout in the village of Rosset, just outside Wrexham. The business, which he ran with his wife Maggie, thrived enough for him to make a decent reputation as a well-liked and successful restaurateur, and enough for him and another family member to later open a similar venture, Churton Cousins, in the Cheshire village of Tarpoli. A friend of Nick's, former chief sports writer for the independent newspaper, James Lawton, described later. It was at his restaurant in Rosset, 
For many years somewhere he made a mecca for good dining and the liveliest of companionship that he best expressed himself. Nick's place was where you went to step out of the mill of life for a few hours, or sometimes rather more, and it was clear that Nick's place was also Nick's world. In the company of his wife Maggie, he created an ambiance that was almost invariably full of exuberance. Another friend, pianist and vocalist Jed Scott, who regularly performed at Churton's, recalled, Nick was an extraordinary character and I was very fond of him, but I also have to say he drove a hard bargain. I could have earned a lot more in the clubs and restaurants back home on Merseyside, but I was always drawn to the wine bar. It had a magic of its own and that was created by Nick. As you can see then, for many years things went well and Nick worked hard at his ventures, often putting in up to 16 hour days. But by the time he retired in 2010, both businesses had been steadily losing money, and by 2012, the firm of which he was director, Machine House Limited, had been put into compulsory liquidation. The other firm, Churton Cousins, was also wound up the same year, with both premises being taken over by other companies. By this time also, Nick had developed issues with alcohol abuse leading to him separating from his wife and moving out of the family home, Meadow Barn, in the village of Fly, and into rented accommodation in Wrexham's Grosvenor Road. His drinking steadily worsening, it led to him losing his driving licence for drink driving, several spells in and out of hospital because of his alcohol abuse, and in 2013, receiving a suspended prison sentence for being caught driving after he'd been banned. Relationships with his wife and family had also disintegrated by then to the point where a restraining order banning him from approaching his wife or within a mile of the former family home had been put in place, which he had breached the following January and was given a suspended prison sentence for. When he'd breached it once again on four separate occasions on consecutive days that June and had told police interviewing him after breaching it for a second time that the ban didn't mean a jot to him. He appeared before Mr Justice Rhys Rowlands at Mould Crown Court in July 2014, where he was given a 10-month prison sentence. Following his release, he continued this unsettled lifestyle and moved about the Wrexham area somewhat, living alone and including living for a time in Ruabon, but had become physically frail and with a disability requiring the use of a walking frame to walk any great distances following a fractured hip he'd received after a drunken fall. He was also by this time suffering with mental health issues. By October 2016, he'd found accommodation in a one-bedroom rented flat at number 30 Crescent Close, just off Crescent Road on the edge of the Kaya Park estate, and relations had improved somewhat with his family. Though he and Maggie were long divorced by then, Nick had seemingly accepted that their marriage was over and they spoke often, their focus together being that of their children and by then their grandchild. They already had one grandchild and in 2017 another was on the way and they discussed several times about bridges being built and making arrangements for Nick to see them. Still caring very much for her ex-husband, Maggie and several other members of Nick's family were very concerned that he was vulnerable to exploitation, 
as despite his problems with alcohol, he was a kind and well-liked soul, generous to a T, and that fact tended to attract certain people to him, as it does, doesn't it, with people like that. You'll always get someone who'll take advantage. This generous nature, plus the fact that Nick still had some money, an amount of savings which was left over after his divorce settlement, made him, in his brother James's eyes, an easy target, a soft touch. Park that thought, because over the course of the tale, I shall come back onto just how right James was. Where Nick comes into our story is that at 3pm on the 14th of March 2017, he had contacted North Wales Police to report that two days before, a man who called himself Jordan, he claimed he didn't know his surname, had knocked on his window and asked if he could use the toilet in his house, which the kind-hearted Nick had agreed to. He reported that Jordan had then taken a claw hammer and threatened him with it, asking him for money, and that he'd also tried to take his television from the house, as well as his house keys. The call handler who was dealing with the matter duly opened a police incident log, but classified the incident on North Wales police systems as theft rather than robbery. Though given, details of a neighbour who may have been able to identify Jordan were also not recorded, and nor does it seem that Mr Churton's vulnerability was prioritised either. What is recorded is that an officer from the Managed Response Unit contacted Mr Churton back the same day in an attempt to obtain further information and asked Mr Churton to establish the full name of Jordan, which he couldn't do. Nothing was done until the same officer again spoke to Nick a week later, on the 21st of March, and asked him to make inquiries amongst his friends and neighbours as to Jordan's surname. Yes, investigate your own robbery. And two days later, on the 23rd of March, Nick did call back, having discovered and giving police the name Jordan Davidson, who, by that time of course, was already wanted by them. Now. How Nick could identify the man as Jordan, to begin with, is not clarified, although it was suggested later that they may have known each other, at least by sight, as Crescent Close is linked to Crescent Road, where Davidson spent some time staying in the homeless shelter there. Another possibility, though one that was merely later suggested and there is no evidence to support it, and indeed, a friend of Nick's that I spoke to was firmly in denial that this would be true, but another possibility is that Nick had periodically bought cannabis from Davidson and had known him as Jordan from doing so. It's one of those details that just can't be clarified that. Five days after Nick's initial call to police, in the early hours of Sunday, March the 19th, Davidson was arrested for the third time that month after the previous evening having gone out drinking with friends in the town centre to which he took a knife out with him, including taking it into the former Liquid and Envy nightclub, again, very close to where I live. He'd already had an axe that he had had on him taken from him by his friends the previous Saturday evening. Though no trouble occurred within the venue and he'd left here about 4am, at about 4.20am, Davidson became involved in an altercation with a group of four men in the St Giles car park just off the bottom of Town Hill. Two police officers who were standing at the junction of Town Hill and Brook Street 
made their way down the side of the car park, where they saw a man on the floor who had taken his shirt off and was aggressively shouting at the other group, trying to start a fight, and being restrained by security staff. It was recorded that the man, identified as Davidson, was visibly injured and appeared intoxicated, so officers took him to the nearby Havana Drive Red Cross building so that his wounds could be cleaned. An officer recorded that, as they soon afterwards left the Red Cross building, they saw Davidson throw an object from his pocket onto the roof of the building, but which then fell to the ground. The item was recovered and found to be a folding lock knife with a three-inch blade. Officers then took hold of Davidson, and as he struggled against them and was handcuffed to the rear, arrested him on suspicion of possessing a bladed article in a public place, and then took him to his home-from-home, Wrexham Custody Suite. Records showed later that Davidson had been given police bail later that day over this possession of a bladed article charge, for which, alongside the other offences he'd accumulated already, as you've heard, he was expected to be dealt with for by a court at a later date, reportedly the 24th of March, where he was looking at prison recall. But events were to spiral a bit somewhat following this. Now, by this time, it finally dawned somewhat that this fella is out on license and he's been arrested four times in the short time since he has. Perhaps he should be recalled? Yeah, you think? So, by the following day, as steps were being taken to prepare to revoke his license, it was then he somewhat went to ground, although remained in the Wrexham area. We know he remained in the Wrexham area because, on Wednesday the 22nd of March, Davidson committed two separate burglaries at opposite ends of Kaya Park. For the first of these offences, Davidson had returned to Crescent Close, the cul-de-sac where Nick Churton lived, but to a separate flat there where the occupier, Robert Simmons, was at home at the time but was in the shower. Robert heard his front door open and then shut again and ran out of the shower to confront Davidson as he was walking away. Davidson said to him as he went, Sorry mate, wrong house. After seeing off the would-be intruder, Robert didn't notice until it was too late that Davidson had taken both the keys to his flat and the keys to his car, a Vauxhall Corsa, which a short time later, Davidson returned and took from where it was parked around the corner. At about 4.45pm the same day, Davidson committed his second burglary, this time at a property at Tanner Dray, where he smashed a window to gain entry to. However, the householder was alerted by a neighbour who had witnessed this, and returned to the house with her mother to see Davidson walking away with her TV wrapped in her own duvet. She then confronted Davidson, they don't mess about down the park, I tell you, who dropped the items and made off in the stolen Vauxhall Corsa. A short while later, at about 5.30pm, he was involved in a minor road traffic collision whilst driving the Corsa along the Queensway in Kaya Park, following which he then abandoned the car and ran off. At 5pm the following day, Thursday the 23rd of March, Davidson returned to the Queensway, where he then attempted to rob the unique hair and beauty salon near to the Queensway Athletics Stadium. 
CCTV later showed Davidson arriving outside the salon on a bike with a mask over the lower half of his face and a bulky object hidden under his clothing. He then walked into the shop brandishing the bulky object, which turned out to be a fearsome looking machete and threatened the four female members of staff with it. He demanded that they open the till, holding the machete above his head, and at one point to the chest of one of the staff, but courageously, they refused to cooperate. They were joined by a male member of staff from the cafe next door who had arrived here in the commotion, and so Davidson, feeling threatened as people were standing up to him, then backed off. He ran out of the salon and made off on the bike, CCTV showing him still holding the machete in his hand. It transpired later that Davidson had had this machete, black in colour and with a large black coloured blade, one edge sharp and curved, the other serrated, and which he referred to as his new toy, for at least a 10 day period, although this was the first time he'd taken it out with him on his crime spree. He posed for several pictures that he'd text to various friends of his, saying he couldn't wait to cleave someone with it. Immediately after the attempted robbery, Davidson sent the 15 year old girl he was infatuated with a message boasting about what he'd done. He also then rang her and accused her of trying to set him up, a reference to the sexual assault she'd accused him of and had that day been interviewed about. And when she said she was going to go to the police station, he called her a snitch, then said, Goodbye. However, later that evening, between 8.41pm that night and 10.14am the next morning, he sent the girl a jumbled series of text messages. Now, these are written in text speak, which is my absolute pet hate and which is so hard to read aloud as it's been written, so you have to bear with me, but one of which read, I am on a wild one, this boy out of control, whoop whoop. There were further messages, which the girl did correspond back with, and in which Davidson had written in one text, I've gone too far to turn back. One way or another, I gotta die. I found my power. Today is gonna be a day that will be remembered. My toy got dirty, haha. Head gone, head gone, finally snapped. Bodies, bodies, bodies everywhere. Four kisses. But I'm so damn happy. This is gonna be, without doubt. The next six words are in bold, capital letters. The greatest day of my life. What are you gonna do with yourself when I'm gone? I know I might have sounded a bit staccato and a bit jumbled saying that, but it's so hard to read out loud text speak. It is awful. What a absolutely clusterfuck of a thing to do. Oh, horrendous. Asked by the girl what he meant, he replied, Gone, not around anymore, finished dead. I'm about to seal my fate with the shooters. Once I've killed, they will have no chances, bullets dead. I'm going to make it, guarantee you, armed police are going to have to finish me off. When the girl said police would not kill him and were just looking for him, he said, They'll shoot me double tap dead when I run at them with the shit, kid. I've gone up a level, you'll see. Got my new toy here, machete. Got to come and show you what I'm about. Watch out, be careful, I'm coming for you now. Davidson had indeed, horrifically, 
that evening gone up a level, though this wasn't discovered until four days later, and which I shall explain about in the second part. At about 6.30pm on Friday, March the 24th, Davidson attacked and robbed pensioner Michael Rogers near to the play area on Whitegate Road, at the southern end of Kaya Park. As I said, if you head over to the show's Facebook discussion group following the episode, I visited this scene and I've taken a short video there that I will share with you in the group. Michael recalled later how he decided to walk home after spending the afternoon in a local pub with friends, saying, I saw a chap coming towards me with a hood on and he said to me, Have you got a light? I said, No, I'm sorry, I don't smoke. And then I walked maybe five or ten yards. And all of a sudden, I felt this arm round my throat, and then he threw me to the ground. I've got bad knees, and I just couldn't get up. My mind was totally blank. I was just in so much shock. He asked for my phone, and I thought he was just going to rob me because I wear quite a lot of jewellery. He left me on the ground and started shouting at me, Look at me! Look at me! Horrifyingly, it soon became apparent that Davidson wanted to do far more than rob Michael. He continued. He started shouting at me that he was going to cut my head off. He said it over and over again. And I just said to him, Why me? I'm an old age pensioner. I got nothing. Why me? I don't know you. He then took a big blade out of his jacket and he said, I'm going to cut your head off. You're going to die. And I just laid there hoping it would all finish, if you like. I don't know how long I was on the floor with him shouting that he was going to chop off my head, but it felt like hours. Imagine how terrifying that must have been, eh? Just trying, it must have been absolutely terrifying. Michael continued. Now, when that happened, this girl shouted, What do you think you're doing? I didn't see her, I don't know who she is. He didn't answer her, but he went over to her. I then scrambled to my feet and walked away. All I could think of was walking away. Indeed, as luck would have it, just at that moment, the 15-year-old girl who Davidson was said to be obsessed with had walked into the park and called his name, so Davidson immediately walked over to her, leaving Michael on the floor and him having stolen just three or four pounds from him and his Samsung mobile phone. Michael continued. I finally managed to get up and walked out of the park. I didn't look back and I didn't dare run. I went straight to my girlfriend's house and told her I'd been attacked. Up until then, I hadn't been in any pain, but as soon as I got to her house, I couldn't stand up. My back had totally gone. He was rushed to Wrexham Myler Hospital where he was thankfully only found to have received minor injuries and was also interviewed about his ordeal by police. Though he was to make a full recovery, the attacks left a lasting scar with Michael, who explained further. He was wearing a hooded top, and now, every time I see someone with a hood, it brings it all back. I think they're going to attack me. I can no longer walk through that park. I make sure I avoid it. Things like this do leave lasting scars, don't they? Michael also believes that he owes the teenage girl who called out to Davidson his life, saying, I just want to thank her. I'm convinced she saved my life. 
He took the machete out at the exact moment she called out to him, and I'm so grateful to her. I do believe it's down to her that I'm alive today. If that girl hadn't been there, I think he would have killed me. Following events of the previous day I haven't yet mentioned, I do too. I really do. Later that same evening, Davidson committed an aggravated burglary at a house in Benjamin Road, armed with a machete and a folding knife. Occupier Prisemler Sazanek returned home to find Davidson in the house and confronted him, following which Davidson fled. Though Mr. Sazanek ran after him, as he approached Davidson, Davidson threatened to kill him, reaching for something in his coat pocket. As Mr. Sazanek had wisely stopped at this movement, Davidson had then opted to flee. However, he'd left his mobile phone in the property, on which the text messages he'd sent to the girl were later found, alongside the pictures of him posing with his machete, which, along with a folding knife, Davidson had also dropped in the garden of the property as he fled. Chillingly, the black-bladed machete was later found to be heavily bloodstained. Now, over that weekend, Davidson left the Wrexham area and appears to have spent a quiet weekend staying with friends of his further up the North Wales coast in Old Colwyn, at one point even going fishing. He didn't seem to have a care in the world, even though an appeal had, on the 25th of March, been made by police searching for him. But when he and his friends returned to Wrexham on the Monday lunchtime, Events were to transpire that made Davidson's friends challenge him about, and when he didn't deny them, but instead laughed them off, made them tell him to leave, and them not want to know him any further. Which, I've decided, I shall explain all about in the next episode, because that is a perfect place to leave it for the time being. As I explained before, there's quite a bit to this. I didn't realise just how much, to be honest, until I started coming to research and writing. And so to do it justice, it works so much better split into two parts, with the second part coming in just a couple of days. It is a tale that I'm sure you can see why I've entitled it as I've done already. And I know we've time jumped a bit, but it is a tale that gets worse, I can assure you. It's almost finished being written as well, just a few touches left to put to it and then it'll be with you. I'll even splice it together without adverts or anything like that and intros and release it all as a whole for bonus Patreon content as well. How's that? I shall of course also, as I always do with multiple part episodes, as per usual leave my own thoughts and feedback concerning the tale overall for the end of the concluding part. With that then, I shall now wrap up and shut up here. I thank you kindly for joining me in the MOG for the first part of our tale. As I said, look out also for the videos that I shall share up in the show's Facebook discussion group, taken when I visited some of the scenes I've described within this first part, and we shall be back with you soon. All that remains for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all. Thanks once again for joining me, stay safe and goodbye for now.